0: There are no people, there are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Where are all my people? Where are all my people? I guess I'll fly away
1: everybody, everybody. Welcome, welcome. It is Monday, February 27th, 2023. Yes, that's right. We are hitting the end of February here, folks. We're making it through. Welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists and troublemakers of all sorts right from our own backyard from across the country. You can also join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can just check out our once or twice monthly The Wednesday Show with Cyril Micheleko. Cyril, of course, is the editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon. And he joins me every once in a while to drill down into Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and international politics. You can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. And you can also help out the show right now by heading on over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And for more PA progressive talk, tune into the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your live streams, and to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You and go to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across, across all his platforms. And if you haven't checked it out already, also you gotta check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women. Stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast. Rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard The Signal, new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by The Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Micheleko, and produced by yours truly. That's right. Twice a month, the signal will shine a light on the right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so that we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check out the information at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com, soon to be streaming on every single podcasting platform you can imagine. And for all you gamers out there, The Game Inn, that's with two N's, The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for retro N64s or latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. You can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at The Game in That's with two N's. Got a question about a game, looking for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And a shout-out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at at songadayman. Again, two ends. We're on the two end tip, at songadayman on Twitter. We can't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Levelfield to launch a truly community-rooted PAC to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Yes, everybody, tonight, tonight, I'm very, very excited tonight. I've been looking forward to tonight's conversation, and I know you have too. So tonight, I welcome Dr. Patricia Roberts-Miller to the show. We'll be talking about her book, Demagoguery and Democracy, and her work on the continued threat a culture of demagoguery poses to democracy, equity, and justice. In Demagoguery and Democracy, she writes, quote, Demagoguery isn't about what politicians do. It's about how we as citizens argue, reason, and vote. Therefore, reducing how much our culture relies on demagoguery is our problem and up to us to solve. Trish Roberts-Miller was former director of the University Writing Center and now professor emeritus in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Texas at Austin. She is, in her words, which I love this, (laughs) a scholar of train wrecks in public deliberation. That is, times that communities made decisions that they later regretted, although they had all the information they needed to make better ones. In addition to demagoguery and democracy, she is the author of Speaking of Race, Constructive Conversations About an Explosive Topic. Rhetoric and Demagoguery, which was a finalist in Rhetoric Society of America's Book of the Year, Fanatical Schemes, Pro-Slavery Rhetoric and the Tragedy of Consensus, Deliberate Conflict, Composition Classes and Political Spaces, Voices in the Wilderness, The Paradox of a Puritan Public Sphere, and various book chapters and articles. We got all the creds listed there, everybody. Yes, indeed. Trish, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is, I'm really looking forward to this.
1: Uh, I'm I'm absolutely thrilled to have you. And, um, you know, before before we kind of get into, um, you know, your book and demagoguery and so on, can you just talk a little bit about what got you here, <laughs> right? Like, uh, what brings someone to decide, you know what, I'm going to devote, you know, a good chunk of my life's work to studying demagoguery. Because, um, yeah. you know, there's a lot of folks out there say, hey, isn't that just a thing of the past? <laughs> right. Right. So can you yeah, talk us through that a little bit?
0: Uh, it was a great blue heron. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, at, you Spoke know, I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. no, I, I, I was uh, I was a rhetoric major, you know, uh, and um, at that point, the rhetoric department strongly em- it was heavily influenced by Wayne Booth and Aristotle and um, and it, it emphasized first that if you were going to disagree with someone, that you make sure you know what they actually were saying um, and, uh, and so it was mind-blowing for me that the first thing you do in an argument is listen um, and then you, you know see if you can find common ground because often if you can find some kind of common ground you can find a productive conversation or maybe even a solution that neither of you thought of before and so, um, so I, I was uh, you know I had a little truck with a camper shell And I uh, was camping, car camping, and saw a great blue heron for the first time and was just blown away by it. And I had this weird assignment. I was supposed to, uh, for one of my classes, begin with a personal experience. So I tried to write about why it was that seeing a great blue heron was so wonderful and therefore um, we should preserve wild spaces in cities. And at that point, that was a big issue in the Bay Area, what was going to happen with these old Navy yards and stuff. And so... Would they be turned into parks that would be very safe and sterile or mild? And the teacher pointed out that what I had done was preach to the choir, that basically anybody who thought seeing Great Blue Heron was valuable was already with me on that. So that's what got me interested. Okay, how, how do you disagree productively when you disagree at the major premises? Mm-hmm. With environmentalism, you very quickly end up on, is there a god? What does that God want? Why did God give us the earth? You know, like like those, those aren't right? <laughs> you know those aren't subject to, to oh, well here's my evidence and you know, so so that got me interested in it and then I ended up working on um, John Muir and the damming and flooding of the Hetch Valley, and just and in, in, got involved in Usenet in the eighties, um, yeah. and so was just really really interested in. The fact that super smart people can make very bad mistakes, uh, and then they tend to follow s- the same sorts of patterns, and so could we sort of intervene? Um, I decided, I didn't want to be a professor, but I thought, okay, I'll, I need to figure this out, so I'll get a master's and figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I didn't. Um, so so I thought, that's okay, I'll get a PhD. I'll, I'll go ahead and get a PhD and solve this problem. Yeah. So here I am, retired, <laughs> still haven't solved it. it's all solved. Wait, what, what, wait a minute. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
1: Well, and that's part of the story, right? I mean, and part of this stuff is, you know, these questions don't just go away and they're not resolved like once and for all. And they're kind of just gone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And they often kind of, I mean, I think this is one of the cool things about being a professor, right? Is that you get to pursue the questions that interest you. And so these things, I kept coming back to them. Right. And, um, uh, and at some point in a grad class, somebody asked a question about the slavery debate. And, and um, they were saying, okay, if these people were really well-trained in rhetoric, why was the slavery debate so bad? And I was like, I don't know, um, and looked into it. And, and I, I, I will admit, I assumed that um, people arguing for slavery had good arguments, not in the ethical sense, but at least in a kind of logical or rhetorical sense. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They had terrible <laughs> arguments. They were terrible, <laughs> yep. um, which really, really surprised me. Um, and it was at that point. So I was working on that book in the early two thousands. Um, I'd gotten really. At, at one point, I had a long commute when I was in Missouri, and I used to listen to um, Focus on the Family, which I found deeply troubling, and uh, and also you know other kinds of hate talk radio, and uh, and then. Listening, watching what was happening in 2003 with the debate over Iraq and how much it was like the situation I was describing uh, and seeing in the antebellum era and our inability to argue productively about um, slavery. One of the reasons because there were no good arguments on one side (laughs) makes it hard to have a good argument. Uh, And it was just so incredibly familiar to me. And I got worried.
1: And then and then, and then, you're off. right? Yeah. Um, and it seems and it seems like that's actually, you know, a, I don't know, it's kind of a, I don't want to say it's the perfect moment to kind of launch this. But, you know, I mean, I, I remember, uh, you know, I remember being part of um, the say, global justice movement, right? Um, at the time I lived in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, when Bush got elected. Um, George W. Bush, I I lived in Washington, D.C. at the time, and we had been all focused on global justice and uh, there was protests against the WTO, the IMF, the World Bank, and all this. And at this moment, what was incredible, I mean, both as someone who's like advocates for this stuff, like, (laughs) you know, in organizing and things like this, and as someone who studies rhetoric, what was fascinating about that moment was there were opportunities opened up for, say, international discussion in ways that I had never experienced before, that people were talking about really hard stuff, right, Um, about impacts of colonization, of centuries of of racism and distribution, all these kinds of questions, but in this incredibly critically generous way is the best way I can describe it. And then we have 9-11 happen, and all this gets shut down, and it felt like this was turned on a dime.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and the tone, I mean, literally, the tone of the discourse shifted so dramatically, um, kind of at that moment, and then it seems like, you know, since that moment, we've been in this growing context of, you know, to use your words, say, like like a a culture of demagoguery, right, or that's been festered, and I I don't want to quite characterize it in that way, because I think, as, as you have said, that, you know, this is something that kind of, is within a culture. It's not just one thing causes it and it's there. Um, but I can remember that as, and so I can understand why this would stand out too as well and why it becomes a fruitful place to really dive into what's happening at this point, especially when the choices, there's so much at stake in those arguments.
0: Yeah. Well, and 9-11 was um, unfortunately a kind of uh, opportunity. I, I, I want to say the there were these worlds and just people like you and I didn't necessarily know about them, but there were these worlds that, that really it reminded me very much of the antebellum era when you had uh, a Whig paper and a Van Buren paper and a Democrat, you know, you, and people had their own worlds and those informational worlds had different <clears throat> beliefs. So, so famously, um, there was a big deal made that abolitionists had tried to flood the South with the with pamphlet uh, abolitionist pamphlets. They actually hadn't, um, but. It was reported in so many papers it came up in congress historians will still refer to that event that never happened but people historians assume it happened because so many people just say that respectable people say that it did happen and i felt that way you know when you would i don't know if you had relatives like mine but um you'd get that email that's well the you know the muslims there's this person had a muslim boyfriend and he said that they're going to blow up local mall um and I'd be like, no, you know, and, and claiming that things that happened that simply had never happened, and, and it, but, but I think what was happening is that there it, we didn't quite have the internet, but there were these realms of uh, talk radio, um, Fox News already that were creating um, loyalty as irrational, fanatical commitment, um, and patriotism as loyalty irrational fanatical commitment to one party and that was worrisome yeah but i but i think it sort of yeah it, it just like it came it, it went mainstream and then what i saw happen that was really troubling is there was no reason for us to go to iraq uh related to 9-11 not afghanistan yeah. i still remember that day thinking we're gonna oh god we're gonna go to war with afghanistan um but uh, but the fact that they were able to f- manufacture a uh, a consensus for the Iraq invasion, uh, a, a kind of invasion that the U.S. hadn't done since the 19th century, um, right. w- was it, it was surreal. It was just surreal. <laughs> I, I still remember yeah, being I, out. I... Like, go on. No, no,
1: no. I, I, I remember that. I remember being to see that, to see that unfold and to, um, to see, um, the, the war happen and arguments being made when you're like, wait a minute, there's this newspaper right here. And they say, <laughs> and it didn't matter. And I remember, yeah. you know, in and Michael Moore's Fahrenheit nine 11. I mean, he got so much blowback for that movie, um, and then I remember because they said, you're making all this stuff up. You're, there was nobody reporting, but nobody knew about this. And the, the, the you know, people were saying, oh, what are you talking, where'd this all come from? And then he put together a website documenting all the sources. There were journalists that were writing about it at the time. There were people doing the investigative work. It wasn't mm-hmm. that the media had, did not pay attention at all. It's yep. just, those voices were completely drowned out. Um, it's yeah. remarkable.
0: Yeah, it really was. I, I still remember I was gardening. And um, and some neighbors stopped and started chatting with me and, and, and talking about how we, we had to go to Iraq because they invaded us. And I said, you know, there no one from Iraq was on that plane. Iraq had nothing to do with that. And, and he said, yes, it did. They paid for it. I said, no, even the Bush administration admitted that Iraq was not involved. But what they did was they had these speeches, and Bush, Bush's speeches were particularly adept at this, where Saddam Hussein's name would be next to 9/11, a sentence would end with his name and then begin with 9/11, or you know, and they and so it's just the fact that so many people reason by association that they, um, you know, that that's that's what people thought. And then you did have people who were outright lying and claiming that that he was. And you know, most Americans can't tell you the difference between Switzerland and Sweden or Austria and Australia, so you know, they didn't right. know.
1: Right, that, and that was good enough, right? They're yeah. all Muslim, right? yeah. so yeah. all bad. Doesn't matter,
0: right? And and that that thing that is that shows up constantly, and I find really fascinating, which is the belief that if something bad happens, it's better to do something, no matter what it is, than nothing at all. And that's just not true. It is, you know, um, yeah, we had to do something, but we didn't have to go to war with anyone. That that was not our only option,
1: right. Right. 100 um, percent. So let, let me you know, one of the reasons why I'm so glad you're able to come on tonight, too, as well as and frankly, why your your book keeps coming back to me um, as kind of real world events are taking place on the, you know, on the, you know, the TV in real life down the street from me. Um, there's just kind of these three related issues, uh, kind of, at least they're related in my brain. Right. One has to do with what we've been talking a lot about on this show has been. It's, you know, this complete like, school boards being thrown into disarray by this onslaught of conspiracy theories, you know, things about, like, LGBT teachers grooming young kids, about CRT taking over and making, you know, shaming white kids about, you know, we need to ban these books to protect our ch- All this kind of stuff is going on, and it's not just... Here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, it's happening. And we see the entire state of Florida and we see a, radical experiments happening in higher education as well as K through 12 there. And this is happening across the country. We get, you know, we're in, we get some back and forth and have correspondence with folks out in California and Texas and all this, where this is happening in those mm-hmm. school boards too. And it's the same organizations and it's the same background, all this stuff. So that's one thing. Then there's the second kind of like bucket, if you will, where, you know, there's like Areas of the media, particular cable news, the liberal cable news, I'm thinking, especially MSNBC, I don't want to paint too broad of a brush here, but seems to have a sole focus on like, bad man Trump. Right? Hmm. And look, he's a bad man. Right? 100%. I'm all in on that, right? So we can say that, you know, not a good guy, did horrible things, all that stuff. But it's like, it literally is the lead story every single night tracking the minutiae of this man. And I, again, I'm not going to be somebody who's going to say that we should ignore those trials and we should ignore that stuff. But I, I keep on saying, like, I'm like, I can't watch it anymore because I'm like, what about everything else? Mm-hmm. What about the entire culture that is percolating underneath this? Why are we talking solely about one man as opposed to what is happening in our country right now? So that's a third, you know, second one. And then the third one is kind of like this, this, this mix, if you will. It's like, it, it's we've got like team sports and politics, where you're red or you're blue. They even color the maps in these ways as if we're supposed mm-hmm. to put on a Jersey. If you have any criticism of your side, so to speak, you get blowback, like as if you're not supposed to do that. Um, and then it seems to me at least, and you could, you know, disagree with me on this one, but it seems like we've got one side <laughs> who doesn't want to play by the rules. Right. And so, and so much of what it depends upon, right. For democracy is that you have, it seems to me you have to have a baseline agreement over how we do things like public discourse, how we actually decide policy, how we do democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and I, I'm afraid, right? I'm afraid that um, we are rapidly evolving in a direction where you have a, a, a group of people who want to play by the rules, right? I'm trying to do politics. And then a whole bunch of other people who just want power. And then a whole bunch of people in the middle who are not sure what the hell to think, mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. So that's kind of, I mean, and I don't want to limit us to those things, but I just want to give you a sense of this is kind of what brings me to this discussion and why I thought it would be really important to get in a little bit to, you know, into your book and to talking about what we're talking about here with demagoguery and how you kind of get a sense of this stuff and then to get a sense of what does it look like to do democracy in a way that we should, you
0: know? Yeah. Um, Oh, such... I mean, I've been thinking about this for 40 years, right? Um, so I want to start with um, what's familiar to both you and me, which is teaching, teaching argumentation. And if you look at how people teach argumentation, they talk about both sides, pro and anti. That's it. That's demagoguery. As soon as... And that's what the media does, and it does what the horse races. As soon as you... There are so few issues that are pro or con. There are a few, um, but not really. You know, um, most most are... There are a variety of, of options and a variety of positions. And even if people agree on the policy, they do so for different reasons and and things. So um, what demagoguery is a way of evading policy argument. And the reason that people want to evade it, media wants to evade it because you lose viewers. Um, if, if you're going to have some really nuanced, complicated discussion about what are the advantages and disadvantages of universal health care uh, versus, you know, there's that... A um, certain people are just going to be like, forget it. I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, a lot of people respond to uncertainty by getting angry and anxious. I should say anxious first and then angry. And, and particularly get mad if you say that this is a complicated situation, that, that they, they hear that as um, deflection and as indecision. And I think that what we need to do is make people more comfortable with uncertainty and understand that it's not a binary, right? Um, but so that's, that's, the long, <laughs> that's the long solution, yeah. right? Um, uh, but also the, the way that we have spent a lot of time. So the way that students and, uh, are taught argumentation and the way argumentation is modeled in the media is pro and con. So it's two sides. Secondly, it quickly shifts to questions of identity and and who's good and who's bad. And the assumption is one side's good and one side's bad. And so you just need to figure that out. Um, But also we talk a lot about trusting, trustworthy sources. And for many people, that's Burke's identification. A a trustworthy source is someone who is in group, who gets you, who cares about you. Um, And so once these are all ways that we're not talking about, about policy, right? Um, but all that stuff is extremely useful when you're trying to mobilize a diverse, a diverse voter base. If you say, if, if you have a reasonable policy discussion, it's going to hurt somebody. And so they're going to be opposed to you. And so the right. more that people discuss policy, the more enemies you create. So if you evade policy discussion and instead mobilize against a common enemy, again, Burke, right? Said this in 39, talking about Mein Kampf you mobilize against a common enemy who's ideally you know, easy to, uh, to demonize, then then you can do it without talking policy. And that's what I think Rush Limbaugh figured out in, what was it, the 80s, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, But what I found really interesting, I've been dipping into, because I read these sorts of things, dipping into um, anti-communist demagoguery from the 20s. And that's, that's what they did. And I feel like what we're actually seeing is that playbook is the, is what, and at that point they were sort of on the fringe, but, uh, you've got Hoover, who's not a fringe person who is right. starting it in, in that era. And, uh, and so that that's the playbook that, that the Republican party has taken up. I think MSNBC has the same problem. Progressives do not agree as to what the best policy is. And, I will say, I self-identify as progressive, but I will say that we have a hard time compromising. Right. Um, We do, you know, and and to some extent because we feel like we've compromised a lot, Uh, we've compromised too much, we're done compromising, but we have trouble compromising with each other, Um, and we have some...
1: not to stop your train of thought, but I think that's really interesting and, uh, and seeing that play out with uh, mm-hmm. the kind of squad within the Democratic Party. Not so much you expect there to be tension within within those factions with the Democratic Party, but rather how people are treating those members, the squad mm-hmm. members. Right. Is like they need to somehow like meet this line of purity. Otherwise, they're sellouts as opposed to having a much different approach to understanding the way power works or how you kind of move policy over time and so on. I mean, I didn't mean to derail things there, but yeah.
0: No, I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. And I, I think it also has to do with um, that. I, I certainly remember when I was 18 and 19 and beginning to get involved with this. It just seemed to me so clear. Everything yeah. seemed really clear. And I thought that these older people who were arguing for you take a step and then you don't you, you settle for one step, but you don't let it go, and then you take another step, and then you take another step. Um, that that was, it, it seemed old to me, you know, or something. Yeah, and, sure. And so I, I, so I think that that's also something that we need to talk about is strategically what's really worked in the past and what works where. We also, I think, have a problem as progressives of saying, okay, here's this thing that worked incredibly well in Los Angeles or something. All right, let's try it in Texas. It's not going to work in Texas. <laughs> no. <laughs> Gee, um, what <how> is that? <laughs> yeah. You know, let, let's look at what has worked in places like Texas. And right. so that we also need to be open to different people trying different strategies in different places given their situation. Um, but I think that, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's, that's a, a large part of it is that if, if, people can focus on Trump, then we're not going to argue about what's the best kind of health care for us to get. Uh, and I just, let's go ahead and have that argument. And let's go ahead and be willing to lose with each other and compromise and, and strategize.
1: Yeah, 100%. And I think that, you know, it was interesting to see um, there's these moments where I, I thought that we had some possibilities. We got some cracks in there. Like I, I, I thought it was such an interesting move for um, uh, AOC, and uh, I'm, just, I'm spacing his name right now. But when they proposed the the Green New Deal resolution, mm-hmm. right? Because in part because it set a horizon, and it's it wasn't a a yet you vote for this or not, right? It was a resolution to start a conversation. Right. Like how we get there is the policy question. Right. How yeah. we adheres a starting point to a conversation. And there was this this moment where that started to happen a little bit, but it seems we're snapped back again. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to look at those moments where when people took a pause and said, hey, wait a minute, there's an opportunity to do something here that none of us has like the singular answer. But here's a place to start. Um, and then we go from there.
0: But, yeah. Yeah, I th- I do think that part of what happened was, uh, we started having to like f- fill holes in the boat, kind of. I mean, the. Yeah, you are young. Yeah, uh, be- be- yeah. Because of what you're talking about, the fact that, that, uh, we're back at not being able to mention major figures in American history because they were anti racist. The CRT stuff makes me just absolutely bang my head on my table. Um, and and I so the other p- part of this is as you know, but your viewers may not. Um, I I drift around dark corners of the internet and argue with jerks. <laughs> I'm, I'm being polite there, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I have for years. I found it really really interesting, and I found it interesting to like. Can you persuade them? And and how can you do that? Um, and and what what I did learn is that business of trust your source. What with, and I've occasionally had this happen in teaching of, of a student will say, well, so-and-so said this. And I'm like, I don't think they did. And I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this, my in-group source said they did. And I'm like, no, you're going to have to find that. You're going to have to find that quote from them directly. And they actually could not understand the distinction between a primary and secondary source. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having to spend time explaining what's the difference between a primary and secondary source. Why, why relying on someone who hates we use, I use my dog as an example, Chester Burnett. Why we can't rely on, on a hand quote on the, from someone who hates him about what Chester said. And you've got to find it in the context. And they really didn't see. And it was, it, it finally, what I ended up having to do is, has, ever, has anyone ever misquoted you? And how'd you feel about that? Mm-hmm. Then don't do it to anyone else, you know? But, but <laughs> that's, that, that is a big part of it. It's this kind of a trust your source thing. And so people, um, they don't feel the need to read any CRT. Um, they don't feel the need to read anyone who disagrees with them because because the case that's being made to them is so clear and compelling. Um, and it's... It, because it's really easy to put together a plausible-sounding case, especially if you can count on your audience not checking your sources.
1: <laughs> oh, right, well, and I think it's also, you know, I mean, there's just, at some... At some ace level too i mean it always seems like we're talking about you know feelings of belonging right i mean because mm-hmm. it's it's wanting to be part of something um and also being disciplined once you're there right i mean there's you know uh, what's very interesting to see what's happening at right-wing discourse in my mind is um well this happened this happens on the left too as well um but you have the, the policing of the lines of you know are you stepping out um and there's Little, you see these little battles among kind of right wing media figures um, that start going after each other when they say something that's potentially could lead people in a different direction away from what the message is. Um, and, you know, if you've got folks that are on a team and they want to be part mm-hmm. of the team and their identity is being part of that team, um, they are looking for cues about what's right to say um, yeah. because they want the cheers, you know, they want to feel like they belong too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I I have really tried to train myself out of talking about right wing versus left wing, um, because it goes back to that thing of saying that there there are two yeah, sides, yeah. um, and what it ignores is that the is that so I use pro GOP, um, because that's a, that's what they are really. I mean, they don't actually have a coherent political ideology or or policy agenda at all. Um, it's uh, And I think it's Paul Johnson's book does a really good job. I mean, several other people have, but I like his in particular for talking about how um, they've got this, you've got this libertarian and then this kind of toxic populism and and how people manage, Reagan, especially Goldwater, managed to interweave those two things. And then and especially not let people then think about the extent to which policies are hurting the very people who are voting for him. The other book that, oh, I can't believe I just blanked on it. I'm so bad on names. Um, but anyway, uh, there's the, I mean, the other thing about that is fascinating. This is what I'm going around telling everybody about because I didn't make it into the book because I didn't know about it at that point. It's called Vladimir's Choice. Have you ever heard of this? No. So Vladimir's Choice is, um, it comes from uh, an old Russian folktale where there's this guy, Vladimir, And, um, and he has a neighbor whom he hates, Ivan, and God comes to Vladimir and says, I will give you anything you want, but whatever I give you, I'm going to give twice as much to Ivan. And, um, and so Vladimir thinks about it for a while and says, gouge out one of my eyes. So what, what, what the pro-GOP media has figured out, and they figured this out quite a while ago, is that. People will hurt themselves if they believe it hurts a lib more, and so you've yeah. got this whole sticking it to the libs as as a compelling argument for a, for a lot of people, even if they're going to lose an eye. Uh, and that's, I find it really hard then to to uh, to get past that in some sort of way. You know, to what 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 can we do about that? Um, but yeah, yeah. well.
1: Well, so a couple of things then. So, I mean, maybe one of the things that I like about what you do in this book and your, and kind of your work too as well is it seems to me is that there is something, uh, one, it's almost like, okay, how do we recognize this stuff, right? So we recognize it for what it is. Um, uh, and then the secondary question is almost like, well, then, then how do we engage, right? I mean, what is it, what do we need to be able to do? Right. So um, you're, you've already mentioned we're looking at, say, you know, characteristics of what kind of demagoguery is. And one of the other things that I, that I, I want to talk about, too, is, is, is along with that is like we're not talking about a, simply a demagogue. Right. You say in the book, mm-hmm. right. Look, you have to like demagogue doesn't come around, you know, is plopped out of nowhere, kind of drops down and suddenly transforms everything and turns everybody into kind of like, you know, perpetrators of genocide. It never starts there. <laughs> right. Right. And there has to this stuff has to be kind of in the culture. And so, I mean, in addition to that kind of idea about, about identity, that, okay, we are, this is about identity. And then this is about kind of saying about we, what we do, us and them, right? What do you see as some of these kind of these characteristics of kind of demagoguery that would be like indicators in a culture, like warning signs, if you will, that when we see this, we need to kind of be understanding what's happening.
0: I I think it's the the big one for me at least, and this is when I got so worried was informational enclaves, was was people getting all their information only from one or two sources. Interestingly enough, uh, the most recent thing I read on this said that the that um, radio is still a major major source of information for a lot of people yep. who are white supremacist, um, and uh, it's what I like the term authoritarian populist, and. And authoritarian populists—they're they're still listening to radio—is—is is what they're doing, and—and and there's a community, and those people are really good at creating sorts of feelings of community. My guess is that YouTube is—is going to be the the second, and—and and some of it has to do. A lot of people are are worrying about YouTube algorithms, right? You and should. the ways that, yeah, the ways that you start out with something relative innocuous, uh, relatively innocuous, and then you can find yourself deep in, in really nasty conspiracy theories, and. I, I, this is one where I can't cite the research. I haven't seen research on this, but it seems to me that people find visual evidence much more compelling than any other kind of evidence. And I just I believe that because you hear people say, I saw it with my own eyes. You saw a video with your own eyes. You didn't see the thing. You didn't see the event. You saw a video. Um, and, and somebody uh, carefully
1: it, walking you through it so you knew exactly how to interpret it.
0: Right, yeah. You know. So that's not... But, but so people find that, that really, really compelling. So I think that's one thing. Is, um, and, and then I think also there's something about the level of accusations that, that people are making. And that's why this stuff about the grooming is really scary. Um, and again, that goes back to Pizzagate, right?
1: Right. 100%. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it goes back to the anti-communist demagoguery of the 20s, that they were obsessed with sex. Uh, just obsessed so with it. It's so
1: weird. It's so ah. freaking weird. I mean, it, it makes sense. I mean, you know what we had, we had, uh, Jenny Cohen was on not too long ago and she studies kind of, you know, the rise of Christian nationalism and things like this. And folks who are been tracking that kind of religious right. Um, and kind of as its connections with white supremacy, like throughout American history. And there's always, these two things are always paired, right? Because of course, mm-hmm. white supremacy is also like deeply kind of patriarchal. Right. right, and sexist and kind of authoritarian um, right down the road. And you talk about, you know, at one point you mentioned George Lakoff and the way George Lakoff frames this as the strict father figure and the way that, you know, that mm-hmm. helps frame discourse. Those things have always seemed to have always been paired together. So it makes sense that the policing of sex, right, in particular heterosexual sex and ex- exclusion of all kind of non-heterosexual sex that can't be controlled by, you know, the white guy, um, that makes sense that it's together. But it's like, it's obsessive and like, dark in so many ways
0: (laughs) and very specific they think about this a lot Um, and um (laughs) it's weird um and i uh i I was really when i first started working on on the demagoguery stuff and was collecting examples from all over it really was funny to uh, funny because i have a very sick sense of humor um (laughs) the extent to which they want our women that was always one um and I had, by that time, already written the book on the American Puritans. And that was an accusation that was continually made that that's what Native Americans. Um, and it's just, that's always, it's always, a, they want our women. And I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> you know? And
1: yes. why I that? don't think that's what's going through their minds right now. It's like on their yeah. top, like secret shelf of like things yeah. to do.
0: I think like keeping their land. And you know, not getting killed—that's going to be higher. Um, <laughs> Do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, You know, so it's it's, it, I, it's it's it definitely touches some kind of nerve. I have to say though, once the Roy Moore stuff came out and the Southern Baptist Church and all that, you start to wonder how much of this is projection and deflection, um, deflecting from the kind of creepiness that's that's going on um, by finding somebody who's worse. I don't. It's very creepy.
1: It makes, yeah. uh, look, that makes 100% sense st- 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 to me. This is exactly what I was thinking, like, in like the part where you're talking about, this is one of the moves that you see very often in kind of, you know, in demagoguery, is you see you're taking the worst ills or the kind of, like, you know, the actions of the in-group, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and project it onto the out-group as if it's even worse, where, uh, you know, and, and th- I see it all over the place. I mean, the only discourse that, the only way that we hear this talked about in, like, you know, in our, our everyday kind of language or on TV is like, oh, it's hypocrisy. It seems like so much more dangerous than hypocrisy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's not, we shouldn't call it hypocrisy because it's, it's worse than that. What I, what I've gotten interested in, I think since, since I wrote the book. um, So I don't think it made it in there is that there's also a weird time thing that happens with this that I find really interesting. So you, you, you get people who say they, they, they say it's war. We're at war. And, and again, that's, Goes back to the, at least the 20s, except I mean, American conspiracy theories. Hofstadter's book is still really good on that, yeah. uh, and you know that the the um, I didn't find Cotton Mather didn't use the war metaphor in um, Wonders of the Invisible World as much as I expected he would, um, but it, I think it's close enough for uh, horseshoes. But um, but <laughs> in the communist stuff, it's all over it. And the interesting question is what kind of war it is and this this is where i'm right now I'm writing a book on war on it's called deliberating war and but i'm what I'm interested in is the fact that so Klaus Fitz famously said that um war is politics by other means, but what he meant by that is is it's not like it it's not like politics leads to war. what he meant is there's always a political end, and the war stops when you achieve that policy mm-hmm. um and he said, you don't very often have what he called total war, absolute war, where you, ha- you need to exterminate the other side. Um, usually you can stop before then. But when you are interested in exterminating the other side, um, in absolute extermination, then there's a different kind of rhetoric. There are no policies that can stop it. And what's scary for me about the, what you start to see in the anti-communist rhetoric and that you see now is that's the rhetoric of the of pro GOP? Is this is war? It's a holy war, and it can only end when you know our our group is completely in power and there is absolutely no power of the other side is completely exterminated and powerless, and we wipe them out intellectually, culturally, um, and that's so. So that, so it's it's an aggressive war, right? but yeah. the way that they claim it's not aggressive is they claim it's self defense and it's, it's self defense and victimhood they're they're forced into this they're absolutely forced into this and they're forced into it um because the left is doing these little things and they're getting these little signs so you've got an uh, a rhetoric of signs rather than evidence if that makes sense and yeah. um and they uh they're justified in doing this because it's what the left would do if it could. So it's 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 self-defense based on a hypothetical that's a projection onto others what they would do. Once I fi- figured that out, I started looking again at Hitler's rhetoric. Um, and it's all over. It's all over. The, um, that's what he says about Poland and Britain and the Soviet Union and, and communists and Jews and... Um, France and everywhere that he's, it's it's always it, interestingly enough, every one of his speeches announcing the invasion of another country is claiming that it was self-defense, and that the other country attacked first. Yeah, don't. I'm, yeah, as I said, I'm writing a book. About it's, that. It's I right. I no, I'm telling you everything. I was. Well, I mean, it was that's a similar you know
1: move you talk about what happened in the Japanese internment, right? Where you have mm-hmm. Warren basically comes out and says. You know, makes these claims about kind of all Japanese, no distinction between, you know, someone from Japan who just arrived with like, you know, like in a soldier's uniform right, versus, yeah. you know, Americans of Japanese descent, no distinctions there. And then says, "Well, okay, they live near all this infrastructure, so therefore they must be planning something." And the fact that they, because we know that that's what they're there—they're here to sabotage it. And but because they haven't sabotaged it, that means that it's imminent. Yes, <laughs> right? yes, and yes. it's made up <laughs> out of whole cloth. There's like nothing. It's just it's completely this made up fantasy. Yeah. Of. Uh, you know, uh, and you—I uh, mean, of course, there's all I mean, and violence is always like just like right around the corner from all of mm-hmm. those claims, it seems to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that moment of, of that's the real proof that they haven't done anything is proof that they intend to. And, totally. and that's why I, I love the, the guy from the Japanese American Citizens League who says, I don't think that's real logic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like eh, this is... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's real all. logic. Yeah, yeah.
1: Not all. That's that's a well. I mean, this is what has me worried when it comes to what we see. It's happening in the school boards and everything. This right. too, as well. The idea that the 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 language. Well, okay. I guess to kind of begin, I'm looking at the time reels. I'm keeping you longer than I promised. So, I'm like, okay, that's
0: what I, I'm I love talking um, about this. My husband's well, said, so I. About so, I mean, it. you know, whatever. <laughs> Don't give me permission. <laughs> no, um, but
1: yeah, so a, a couple things go through my mind here is that. On the one hand, I think that most, most people I know at least, and I'm not talking just people that are politically kind of invested or activists, but like parents who have become involved with what's happening in the school boards, for example. Right. Who never would have. Dis- I had last week I had Robin Underwood on. And she's a uh, head of a parents group um, in Kutztown University where they just kind of like effectively kind of got Alan Grant's book, uh, Two Degrees. Right. About climate change banned from their one book, one school program in the middle school there um, because it wasn't equal on both sides. Right. <laughs> Whatever. Um, but, you know, and she says she's like, I am a reluctant activist. I never imagined myself. I'm a scientist. Right. Uh, that was my training. I was happy studying my bees. <laughs> And now suddenly I find that my school board has turned into a circus. And I have heard that kind of story over and over and over again over the past several years. And so I'm talking about folks who are not like, you know, okay, we're partisans here, but folks are saying, we just want to, we want normal back, right? We want our school board meetings to be boring, right? Over trying to figure out how to, or or just like excited about how to do best for our kids. And instead We have teachers being threatened, right, as predators or attempting to pollute the minds of young kids. There's, like, death threats been sent to school board members and to teachers over these things simply by providing a safe space in the school for for LGBTQ youth. And now we're having the banning of pride flags, the banning of any kind of symbol of advocacy. And there's always this language in these meetings about they are doing this and... Trust me, and again, this is like right out of your playbook. It's like it's haunting me in many ways. It's, um, you know, they haven't done it yet, and that only means that they're about to unless we stop them.
0: Yeah, 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 and it's because they're – you know, you posit the other as fundamentally um, profoundly evil. But also, again – what what has struck me in arguing with certain kinds of people, and it's and um, I talk about a political spectrum because I think that if we were going to really talk about politics in a useful way, we would have what your policy commitments are in terms of domestic and foreign, um, and so that gets you two axes right, and then um, but then also the extent to which you're authoritarian about them, the extent to which you you value disagreement on, on those, and that's where I think it you start to get almost like tones, you um, know in a spectrum. Really, it needs to be a four-dimensional, but I can't. I, I'm not that smart to be four-dimensional, but um, at least three. <laughs> but uh, but um, I think that what's... And so I, I do run into people on other issues who who argue exactly this, this same way. And um, I th- it's so strange. I think they can't imagine that anyone is actually different. And so since they're someone who abuses power They just assume everybody else is going to. And, and so that's, so, I mean, it's, it's sort of like if you meet somebody who says to you, I think everybody's lying and you think, well, I know one person who lies. (laughs) That would be (laughs) you because you just told (laughs) me that, you know? Right, right, Um, right. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. I think you just told me a little too much about yourself. Um, So I think that's, that's part, it's very frustrating then it's, it's hard to get them to see and. So sometimes I think humor can work. And and to the extent that I've made any progress, it's often been sent by saying, look, if I could brainwash my students um, in the days of papers, they would have stapled their papers and numbered the pages. And if I could do it in the days of sending files, they would have named their files sensibly. (laughs) I couldn't get them to do that. (laughs) My students have no problem resisting me. (laughs) I am not going to you know, change their entire worldview by making them read Maya Angelou. No, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's, it. Um, I, I also, with a lot of these kinds of people, there is this sense of, all, I'm, I'm going to quote Chesterton on this, um, mm-hmm. all sins are the same, and if you step into one sin, you're stepping into all of them, and so they really do seem to imagine if you let yourself go, at all, and 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 if you try to be tolerant in terms of say sexuality, next thing you're in an alley with a needle in your arm, gambling and smoking, <laughs> um, and so that's why I think that also uh, so many times when people describe changing, it's because a child or a relative or a loved one says, "No, I am. I this is this is who I am," and that. And that's what happens at college. That's actually why college, uh, and the research on this yeah, goes back to the 60s, that's why college liberalizes students, is that they meet someone that they've been heard preaching about for years and years and years and discover, actually, they're perfectly fine. They're kind of boring. Um, and so it... It And also, and I've had a lot of students say this, that that parents and churches and schools lied to them about things. And so then when they discover that 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 part was a lie they throw out the whole all of it
1: yeah and, it's like you pull the thread and the garment comes apart yeah
0: yeah and so th- so now they don't even believe stuff that actually wasn't a lie they just assume that it was cuz the, the the schools and parents have told them who they are they're people who will, who are willing to lie
1: yeah. yeah so so let me let me start to move us toward closing out here by kind of posing another unanswerable question and um then but before i do that it's like one the again i want to one of the things i'm going to pitch to some folks locally to as well is to check out this book it's demagoguery and democracy because one of the things we obviously not going to have time to go into all these tonight but one of the, the the last part of your book is you know kind of like a mini lesson on kind of like how to kind of like argue democratically right i mean how to have public discourse in ways that um are kind of say ethical above board and kind of meet the requirements of say like a democratic society. So we're having an argument and yes, we're all arguing about the same thing, right? We have disagreements over this kind of stuff and they're legitimate disagreements. um, But we are nonetheless going to argue over things and argument we should say really is at the heart of any kind of like democracy worth its name. I mean, you can't have democracy without that and precisely that the whole idea is meaning to, bring that together. And if you will, and I've talked about in my classes in this way, it's the certain kind of leap of faith, (laughs) the -hmm. idea that, okay, when we come together, we agree upon these rules, right? That at at the very least, even if we make mistakes, right, at the end of the day, we're all in, (laughs) right? Because we were part of this process in making that decision. And if we made a mistake in that choice, then we get to go back recognize what those choices are, realize why we made those bad choices and move on from there. And so it's like, you know, I, I kept on, I, coming back to that as like, you know, really, this is be great to have circulate in our in our communities and some of these organizations that are trying to combat um, for those folks. So that's like really that last part of this book is really that kind of addressing of like how we recognize stuff and what we do in a democracy, right? Yeah.
0: And I will say, so So we kind of have to do this, right? You, you can't enter... Into to a conversation without stereotypes and prejudices, that would, that would actually be mental illness. Um, but uh, so one of the things that happens is when you make a certain argument, people make a decision about who you are and often assume that you're making a, arguments other people made that sounded like it or had a few of the same words. And I've had that happen with me in that part of the book where people think I'm advocating niceness or what is some <laughs> right. called, called Civility. Civility. Yeah, and um, or a sort of rationality that means unemotional, and the notion that ra- being rational means being unemotional is a late 19th century uh, British thing. The French got there a little bit earlier, sort of. But anyway, it's that's really recent. That's not, uh, and it doesn't make any sense. Right. <laughs> it makes no sense. I mean, it's not rational <laughs> not to have feelings about the things that we're discussing. That would be weird. And, and you actually can't make good decisions unless you care, right? And so, so, um, but also I think what people have to understand is that because we're going to care about this stuff, we're going to get mad and we're going to get vehement and we're going to get hurt. And that's going to be part of the process that there's, uh, that there's not a world in which this is going to be comfortable. People do that. There are organizations that have people really different get together and have really, meaningful deep uh, conversations and they gain a lot of compassion for each other it doesn't really change their policies though people still have the still tend to have the same policies but at least they think that they don't think that the other side into you know, the other side is villainous they just think oh these are people who really like guns or these are people who really have no use for guns or you know something and and I think that's that's what we have to understand is that this is going to be that that disagreement is difficult and it's why so many people want to avoid it and because the only thing that we know is this escalating up just going nuclear immediately uh, that we avoid we avoid disagreements altogether and that's instead of being able to have them with boundaries.
1: Yeah, and the boundaries are what kind of says okay, we're we're all playing on the same team. Like you know, at the, even we we're, we're on we're on kind of you know very diametrically opposed things on this particular issue. We're agreeing to this project, right? Yeah. Um. And you know, when when I lose, you know, okay, I'll get him next time. Kind of thing, you know along yeah. these lines. I mean, to reduce it to that.
0: Yeah, I really so like. So what do we oh,
1: do go then? Go oh, sorry, go ahead. My, my I was going to
0: say I really like Mueller's. Um, uh, popular book on populism and then he also recently has a book democracy rules and he makes that argument you've got to be willing to lose and um, but if the same people lose all the time that's a problem and and then there's a systemic issue of some kind and and that you want to look at and either there are people who have some really problematic policies um, that are that they keep losing because it doesn't benefit anyone other than them or something or, um, or yeah, there's, there's systemic problems.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is, you know, again, this is, this is for like another conversation another time, but this is where I think the role of social movements come into play, right. Have historically Mm -hmm. where it's like, when you have, when that structure, that system breaks down and it kind of continually systematically excludes folks, then this is where we get these other kind of movements to put pressure in different ways on that exact system. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking about this. I wrote a piece not too long ago. Um, it was called, like, We're Not All in This Together.
0: Right? Uh-huh.
1: Um, and it was it was called, like, A Case for Factionalism um, and Making the Political Personal, right? Um, and it was provocative, necessarily, right? You know, but it came out of my frustration around what you were just talking about, the civility discourse. And there were a lot of folks that were coming out, in particular people that were calling themselves liberals um, in mm-hmm. the, you know, in the journalist media sphere, that we're making all these kind of founding father arguments, like using Madison to basically say, we have to avoid factionalism here. And so that's the reason why, you know, the tea party, like, yes, I understand that you're upset, but you need to kind of be civil about this stuff. And what I was seeing at that time with what I would at least argue that what we see, what we see now, those were the kernels, the, the beginning of this kind of this, this real strict division where one faction of a party or commitment to a party is decided that it is no longer going to play by the democratic rules. Mm -hmm. And so what I was saying in that piece is like, if we're going to play the founding fathers game, then we got to look at Thomas Paine and not Madison. Right. And the argument was something along the line again is a bit reductive, but, but um, again, this was a, I was angry (laughs) when I wrote this thing, but the idea was was simply like this is like, if you look at what Thomas Paine was doing in the situation where Thomas Paine was versus where Madison was, Madison was trying to say, how do you maintain a Republic? (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right. How do how do we build structures and institutions that ensure that these rules continue? Right. And what Thomas Paine was saying is like, look, you folks are are, are saying that, you know, okay, it's particular in his epistle to the Quakers, like, you know, look, you can't just keep on doing this. Right? You accuse us of wanting to overthrow the king by violent means, and yet, right <laughs> like We're watching daily bloodshed every day and every day that we don't do this. We agree on the ends, you know, peace and prosperity for like long term, but willing to say that we need to kind of we need to fight the British at that point. Now, I'm not I'm the last person in the world that's going to argue for we should be like having a violent struggle. That's not the point. But the point was a metaphorical one about saying what happens when you have one side or, or a powerful faction that is no longer playing by the rules, whether we're talking about a school board or we're talking about a political party. I mean, does that leave you in a place of, say, okay, this is despair? <laughs> or do you have, say, avenues that you think that really what, where, this is where we need to focus in order to prevent this from, like, to use your metaphor, keep on going up that ladder of demagoguery?
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, also, when people cite uh, Madison on that, you know, he, he was working from within a relatively specific intellectual um, canon. And, um, he was basing what he was saying on, on, analyses of what had happened in Venice, um, and what was happening in the, in Britain right at that time, where you had these, these two factions. And it was extremely, I mean, he was describing what, what you and I are actually talking about, where you lose all sense of par, of policy even, and you just, you're just gonna do, uh, all you're gonna care about is, is your party and getting your party in power and stuff, which, which happened. And so I, I, I actually kind of think that Madison, was right, and I think he's he's arguing about something that's a little bit different. But um, but there is the problem of what do, what are you going to do when, say, uh, in the South, in some states, the majority of voters were disenfranchised, strategically disenfranchised, and that was how they were going to keep any changes from happening. And that's of course what's happening again with people wanting to. Um, as Marjorie Taylor Green said you know wanting to to make it so that Democrats can't actually vote and um, and it and I think it comes about because they believe that they're in a war of extermination and if you're in a war of extermination you don't you don't they're, they're, it's it's a state of exception right there are no constraints or restraints on anything that you do and so that's why that war, war of extermination rhetoric is really really dangerous and and i think that we need to to call it out um unfortunately it often has a religious basis and it's it's yeah, grounded yeah. in some really problematic readings of scripture and i can never say the word although i wrote a book that talked about this a lot you know the the premillennial versus postmillennial um millenarianism and yeah yeah <laughs> And so we're back to where I, where I started, right? Like, how do how do you tell people, no, no, no? Okay, if we're going to talk about the Bible, let's let's look at what the Bible really says about this. Let's look at the history of the notion of rapture and everything. But but you and I are talking about a long term. And what I found really frustrating about yeah. major political figures is they don't think there is a long term. Um, when I was writing my uh, working on my senior thesis and and uh, on John Muir's and and the Hetchy Valley stuff. James Watt was Secretary of the Interior, and so this would have been like eighty-one or so. And he said uh, there was no need to worry about the consequences of offshore oil because Jesus was coming in nineteen eighty-four. How do you argue with that? You wait till nineteen eighty-five and say, okay.
1: <laughs> and they said, oh, I, just, talk- I, 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 I forgot to carry the one. My bad. Exactly. It's actually nineteen yeah. ninety-four. <laughs> <laughs> right,
0: that's 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 what's going to happen with all that, um, and I find now when I talk to certain kinds of people, they'll say, global warming can't be a thing because God would never give humans the power to destroy God's creation." I'm like, "Do you know how many animals went extinct?" What, what, you know? Um, so, so that th- th- this is not the hope. We're not ending on a hopeful note, but I think that's I think I think that there are times actually when you're going to say, "Okay, you're not accepting the premises of democracy." And one of the premises is that we are in this together, and we're in this for the for the long term. And so, we're going to ignore you, um, and we're going to try to persuade people to, to ignore you. Um, yeah, sorry, it was dark. <laughs> no, no, no. I think no.
1: no look, it, I think and it, like and again, this is uh, one of the interesting discussions I'm having in my class right now is around this line of when do you exclude and you know, looking at, we just, I mean, this is, we were looking at a very kind of reduced kind of version of some of the things that Karl Popper had said, for example, about liberal democracies, right, is like, Mm -hmm. when does tolerance, right, basically um, leave the game? You know, you have to Mm -hmm. kind of not tolerate the intolerant, right, when their argument is about extermination or their anti-democracy, then those become some of the rules by which we draw the line of kind of inclusion, exclusion into this space of deliberation. Um, But, you know, that's not a, you know, like you said, I mean, that's not a, 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 like a happy note. Um, yeah. And, you know, it just, it makes, sorry, go ahead.
0: Well, what I was going to say though, is that, um, I think that this, this, the way that this can be helpful for people I will say is that I have known people who talked about doing this on a personal level with somebody. If they've, if they've got a relative who's like that to say, okay, do you agree that we're in this for the long haul that, 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 we need a, a world in which there are liberals and conservatives and libertarians and progressives and all these different groups. And if the person says no, then it's like, then we're not we're not going to talk. How's well some more pie? Yeah. What do you like? Isn't that good pie? That's great pie. And actually do that. Like when the person then t- tries to go back and say, well, they're grooming. Like, that pie. I think the crust is the best part. Do you think the crust? You know, be really clear. Like I'm not. I don't see you as worthy of engaging. It makes them stabby. Um, it is actually one of the best possible responses uh, because it's saying your your argument isn't rational, which they hate.
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to use that out of context now. I'm just going to say. I love this pie. That's going to be my go. That's going to be my signal word that I've done Let's with this conversation. That. Let's yes, make I like that. that. That's great pie. This is great pie. The crust. I'm telling you, that's wonderful. Um, well, and to close it, you know, one of the things that I, I do think that, you know, the hopeful note is this is one of the things, again, why I, I were reading your book in my class, why I'm recommending it to people is because I think it's also saying like, okay, we need to uh, kind of exercise our democratic muscles right now Um, and meaning that you know it's been this is the stuff that is not taught in schools in this way right like as you said Mm -hmm. you started with we're taught pro-con and so that in our organizations and as we mobilize and as we build and as we try to kind of reclaim our school boards in these other public places the how matters Mm -hmm. Um, And because the how has, I think, long-term consequences and long-term implications for how we move forward as a society. And that doesn't mean that we're nice to everybody. That doesn't mean we're not angry. That doesn't mean that we include everybody, regardless of the Nazi tattoo on their forehead.
0: Right. (laughs) right?
1: It's the point of how we engage each other. Right. Um, And as we move forward. So that's my, I guess, note of hope to close. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And I I will say, too, that if, if, you know, um, there are I, don't, I, I never know how to, how to say this because English is very strange, but if, if we, um, you don't have to tolerate everybody, but you should tolerate people, not you, like that, that you should be willing to look at the best arguments uh, for positions with which you disagree. And, and you need to be willing to say that there are good arguments for positions with which you disagree, not every position with which you disagree and not every argument, but there have to be some. And if there aren't some, then you're the problem.
1: Oh, I'd like, I love that. I love that. Well, uh, Trish Roberts Miller, thank you so much for taking the time and especially kind of, uh, staying over and talking about this stuff. Um, sure. Like <laughs> I, I could do this all night. So, um, so yeah, so I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, uh, kind of coming out to the show tonight. Uh, thanks so much.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. This is just fun. Thank you.
1: Oh, uh, this is great. And everybody, again, the book, uh, demagoguery and democracy I'm gonna have a list and links to kind of all her work, um, in the show notes for tonight. Um, please do check that stuff out Um, these will be some of the books by the way um, that we will be depositing in our local kind of little libraries around town because uh, our school boards seem to be interested in banning books so we're buying a chunk of these that will be distributed around uh, for people to pick out Uh, of the nice little surprises to take home for some weekend reading so um, little contribution Um, so thanks so much. And thanks to everybody for tuning out tonight. Um, I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, I'm looking forward to that book on war. So, uh, tick tock, huh? (laughs) 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 What every writer likes to hear, right? (laughs) 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 Sound of the clock. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much. Uh, I hope you have a great week and I'll look forward to, uh, talking to you soon. Alright everybody, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. I want to remind you that uh, you can become a patron of this show. Help us out by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Uh, Like I said we'll have links to uh, Trish Roberts Miller's book in tonight's show notes and uh, look for us uh, moving forward. We've got some great shows coming up. Some surprises. See ya!